Welcome back to the Walk the Word podcast with me, Pastor James from Saar Fellowship in Bahrain. And today we jump into Genesis chapter 6. If you grew up in or around church, you've probably heard the story of Noah. And uh, yeah, I'd probably suggest that most people have heard the story of Noah at some point in their lives. So Genesis chapter 6 and 7 and 8 really uh, do detail the story of Noah. And then chapter 9 is kind of the... The, the end of it. So for the next couple of weeks, we'll be talking about Noah uh, and everything that comes with it. So again, if you've not read Genesis 6 in the recent past, do go ahead and press pause and read it, and then we'll come back together. We'll look at a few of the details, the who, the what, the where, the when, the why, things like that. And we will know and grow in God's word together. So Genesis chapter 6 begins, When men began to multiply in the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took as wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, his day shall be one hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men of God who were of old the men of renown. So, at the end of chapter 5, we're introduced to Noah. Uh, In chapter 5, verse 32, we read, After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then now, at the start of chapter 6, we see that as there are more people on the earth, there are more problems on the earth too. And uh, maybe if your Bible's got a little subheading before chapter 6, it probably says something about the corruption that's beginning to be... Uh, present on the earth. So we see in verse 2 this really interesting phrase, the sons of God. And probably the best explanation that I can give for this is that these are these are powerful men. As we read further down in verse 4, uh, they were mighty men, men of renown. So we're talking about powerful, um, probably well-known, influential men, but who were ind- indwelt by fallen angels. So usually when we read the sons of God, it's got quite a positive meaning and we're usually talking about angels. And here we're still talking about angelic beings, but they're not uh, divinely positive. They're not, they're not good angelic beings like angels. We're talking about fallen angels. We're talking about demonic things. So the sons of God, these fallen spirits, they saw that the daughters of men were attractive. They were being governed by that, that inner voice that says, that's good, that looks nice, let's go get it. And we read, they took as wives any they chose. Now, some people will offer a bit of a, an objection to this and say that, you know, Jesus said that, that angels don't marry. But Jesus is talking about the good, pure, angelic beings who are doing the will of God and, and, uh, and staying within the, the boundaries that God has set for them. But, so Jesus is not talking about these fallen spirits who have, have disobeyed God and put aside his will and are doing whatever they want. We've got these fallen spirits who are then uh, indwelling human beings and taking the most attractive people as they see in their own eyes, the most attractive ladies, and uh, and marrying them and having sexual relations with them. And uh, the ladies are having babies. It's a very unnatural sexual union. Uh, we read back in chapter 2 that... God's plan is for one man and one woman. And uh, if God would have wanted angels to indwell people, to have relationships and have babies with people, then I'm, I'm sure he 
would have said that, but he didn't. So we're going to stick with this idea that, that angels, indwelling people, uh, sleeping with ladies and having babies is a very unnatural sexual union. And God sees this and he says in verse 3, My spirit shall not abide in man forever. And uh, maybe your Bible's got slightly different words. Uh, some might say that my spirit shall not contend with man. Or um, here the ESV that I'm reading from says my spirit shall not abide in man. Either way, it carries the meaning that God's spirit will not be a shield for man forever. There'll be no... Um, you know, very, very long lifespans that we saw in Genesis chapter 5, these will not be the standard anymore. So God says, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, you know, he's weak, he's governed by this flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Now, we know that this can't mean that from right now, Genesis 6 verse 3, that man will only live 120 years because Noah lived many, many years after that. We read that he was 500 when he fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then in chapter 7, verse 6, we read Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. So the 120 years is from this point, from God saying, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, he is flesh. From then until the, the judgment of the flood will be 120 years. So from 120 years from God saying this, judgment is coming and we're going to put an end to all this. As we carry on, we see that the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And again, some of your Bibles might say giants. And this is the result of these unnatural sexual unions, these demonic spirits uh, sleeping with the daughters of men, as we read, just, just regular ladies. And they brought children to them. And this really, I read very recently, is that this was Satan trying to pollute humanity. We, we read back in Genesis 3.15 that somebody is coming, more is coming that is going to put things right. And it's going to be from the line of Adam and Eve. One is coming who is going to, is going to fix the, the problem of sin in the earth. Now, if that was a prophecy, if that was a prediction, if that was a word against you, but you didn't know who in particular, because you're not omniscient, all-knowing God, if that was spoken out against you and, and, and you were that way inclined, you would want to do everything to stop that from happening. So by trying to pollute the gene pool, we see here Satan's attempt to get around the solid and true word of God in Genesis 3.15, that, that one is coming who is going to put all of this right. And as we continue there in, in verse 5, we see the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. And what, what, a, what a terrible thing for us as people to hear about ourselves. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. But, you know, if, if we're really, really honest, we know, don't we, that given the choice between something righteous and holy and pure and godly and something of, of the flesh, 
we know that without the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, without being in right relationship with God through faith in Jesus, if left purely to our own devices, we are always going to entertain the idea of the sinful fleshly thing. And God knows this about us. Of course he does. He made us. He knows our mind. He knows what we are going to choose with the free will that he gave us. And we read, you know, the, the Lord regretted that he had made men on the earth. Now, this is really interesting. And that verse does finish and it grieved him to his heart. But it's really interesting that sometimes we struggle to describe God. Of, of course we do. He is he's all knowing. He's all powerful. He's self Existent, he doesn't need a cause, he didn't need a cause to come into existence like we did. So we often anthropomorphize God, which means we, we give him uh, qualities and characteristics, and we, and we talk about God as if we are talking about ourselves or other people. You know, things like um, the Lord is a jealous God is, is our way of describing God's desire to be the master passion of your life. Or we say things like, don't turn your face away from me, God, or turn your ear to me and hear me and and the bible tells us god's word tells us that he is his spirit and we believe that he took on flesh in the person of jesus and walked among us but god the father god that we read of here in genesis chapter 6 we're, we're thinking of god the father we're thinking of god spirit god who is who is you know in in heaven so he doesn't have a face and and ears and human emotions so we do our best by describing God in terms that we're comfortable with and that we understand so when we read the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart what we're what we're really trying to say is that God in his person felt sorrow this upset him this grieves him so when we read the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart what we're really trying to convey and what what we're, what we're trying to describe in terms of God is that this saddened him this saddened his emotions to see his creation both human and angelic going so far off the reservation so far away from the plan that it upset him but we read in verse 8 but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord and God's already said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, men and animals and creeping things and the birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I've made them. So he's, he's upset, this grieves him, and he's going to do something about it. But then there's that glimmer of hope, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And as we continue in chapter 6, we see, as we did with um, the end of chapter 4 on the start of chapter 5, it's almost a new section of Genesis. We see these are the generations of Noah. So we start this new section and Noah's the central figure. Noah's the main character in this part of the book. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. So Noah's genetics, Noah's gene pool, Noah's family had not been polluted by these fallen demonic spirits coming into these men and, and sleeping with and having babies with ladies of the day. So Noah is Noah's genetically blameless. Noah is blameless in his generation. And we see that the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way. 
on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. And as we said, so many people have heard the story of Noah's ark. Uh, if, you, if you grew up in and around church, you've probably sung songs about the animals went in two by two. Um, it's such a well-known story, but there are so many wonderful details for us to look at. So even though God has determined and, and spoken with surety that he is going to destroy, what did he say? God saw the earth, behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh corrupted their ways in the earth. And God said to Noah, I've determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. You know, even though that is going to happen because God said it's going to happen, we see that there's always a remnant preserved. In our Friday service at the moment, we're preaching through the minor prophets, and we saw that um, Haggai was the first minor prophet after the exile of God's people to Babylon, and there was a remnant, there was 50,000, sounds like a large number, but proportionally it was quite small, 50,000 Jews came back to live in the promised land. There's always a remnant of people that want to honor God, that want to live the life that he wants us to live. And here it's Noah. It's Noah and his wife, his sons and their wives. There are eight of them, this remnant that God is going to preserve. And then we, we get that first glimpse of something that most people associate with Noah, the ark. God says, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Now an ark, if you usually think about it, it's not a big boat. If you were to close your eyes and think of an ark, you might think of Noah's ark. You might think of the Indiana Jones movies, Raiders of the Lost Ark. You probably think of some kind of a chest. An, an ark is a, is a big box like a, a big shoebox as such. So Noah gets these instructions, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make different rooms in it, cover the outside with, with pitch, which is this waterproofing substance. And there's an old story that um, J.D. Rockefeller looked for and, and found oil in this part of the world, the Middle East, based on the fact that Noah, all these years ago, was told to cover the ark in an oil-based product. Whether there's any truth to that, I'm, I'm not sure. It's not something I've looked into, but interesting nonetheless. So Noah gets these instructions, and he, he goes about building this ark. And when you stop and look and think about the proportions of it, this thing is massive. It's as, as long as a 30-story building is high. So it's about 150 meters long, 25 meters wide and 15 meters high. It's a huge box of a boat. And I read that it wasn't until 1858 that a boat bigger than the Ark was ever built. So it was the, the biggest boat the world had ever seen and did see until about 200 years ago. And uh, Noah is given very specific instructions about making uh, making a roof and um, where to put the door and how many decks for this boat ark floating chest to save people. Uh, he's given all these instructions and yet he's not told why. 
God has told him to make this ark. This is all the details. Do this, do this, do this. And yet there's no sharing of the plan yet. And we see that God in his sovereign status as in charge and in control over all that he has created doesn't have to tell us the plan right from the get-go. It's enough. It's enough for God to tell us, do this, do that. And he doesn't owe us an explanation for anything. But I'm going to suggest that that more often than not, if you are obedient to God's call initially in his wonderful love and mercy and grace and his desire to involve you in his work, he will share with you the plan. So he gives Noah all these instructions. And then in verse 17, we read, For behold, here comes the plan. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you. What a massive, what a massive thing for Noah to be told. Everything that breathes in air is going to die. And some people say, well, you know, what about the fish? Well, then, you know, fish don't breathe in air to survive unless my high school biology teacher was very much mistaken. They open their mouth, take in water, pass it over their gills and extract oxygen. So the fish were fine. Birds, nothing to, nothing to eat, nowhere to rest. They would have died in the, uh, in the time of the flood. So we read, all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you. What a massive thing for Noah to be told. It's you and me. Through you, we're going we're gonna to do this. We're going to repopulate. You've remained faithful, and through you, this remnant will be saved. What a wonderful preview that is of looking forward to another one who came, who was obedient to God, blameless in his generation, obedient, and through his obedience, through his, 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 his willingness to do what God said, salvation is on offer through what he did. And Noah is told, and of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. And I think that's where we get, you know, the old, the animals went in two by two song. And the ark that we've just talked about, the size of it was, was very much big enough to do this. And I read that if the ark carried two of every family of animals, that would be 700 pairs of animals, but if the ark carried two of every species of animals, that would be about 35,000 pairs of animals. And if you, look, if you go by the dimensions that we've just talked about, the ark could carry 136,560 sheep in half of its capacity. And most land animals are smaller than a sheep which leaves plenty of room for Noah's family, for food to eat, water to drink, and, uh, and whatever they need. Because in verse 21, we see, Also, take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. And then in verse 22, Noah did this, 
He did all that God commended him. And this took years and years and years. Remember, uh, back in verse number three, God says, this is enough. We're going we're gonna to do something about this. We're going to put it right. 120 years. So Noah has got a century and more to get this right. And can you imagine what people thought of this guy building this enormous box of a boat for 120 years? All the wood, all the pitch, and uh, no sign of a flood at all yet. What must people have thought? But Noah was obedient. Noah did all that God asked him to do over a prolonged period of time. And as we'll see next time in chapter 7 and 8 and 9, he reaps the blessings of that obedience. So there are often lots of objections to Noah's ark that, you know, this boat couldn't have been a real thing. It's just a, a well-concocted story. Maybe, you know, people don't even give it the credit of being well put together. It's just a story, you know, designed to keep children entertained, uh, give them a, a paper to colour in kids' church. But, you know, it's not real, is it? Because, you know, it's, uh, it's a story about a large boat with thousands of animals. Of course it's not real. But there is, a, there, is such, there is a rich bank of evidence that the ark was actually a real thing. And let me share some with you. We'll start in 275 BC. A Babylonian historian so this is a man not trying to prove scripture. Right throughout history, we read uh, typically that Babylonians were enemies of God's people. So 275 BC, a Babylonian historian writes about this ship. The ship that grounded in Armenia, some part of it still remains in the mountains. And some people get their oil and pitch from the ship by scraping it off. That's 275 BC. A secular historian writes on a huge boat grounded in the mountains that people go to and scrape off the pitch. Fast forward a bit, 75 AD, historian Josephus said that people went to the ark and collected relics and showed them off. And he, he said to this very day, which is 75 AD. Uh, 180 AD, another historian writes about the ark that... It's there to this day, 180 AD, in the mountains. There was an elderly Armenian man, because the mountain that it, the mountain range uh, is in the kind of extreme east of Turkey, quite close to Armenia. And this old Armenian man said that when he was a boy, he visited it with his dad and three scientists, three atheist scientists who were trying to disprove that the Ark existed, but they found it. And uh, the scientists were so annoyed, so angry with it, they tried to destroy it, but it, it, it was just too big for three angry men to destroy. And uh, so the account goes that in 1918, one of those scientists admitted on his deathbed that the whole thing uh, was true. In 1876, uh, a British author climbed Mount Ararat and reported that he found a four-foot-long piece of hand-finished timber 4,300 metres up the mountain. And uh, there's just on and on and on accounts of people who've seen and heard about the physical real location 
of uh, of Noah's Ark. There's more and more and more and more. If you look them up, I'm sure um, it's very, very interesting, very entertaining to read. There's more and more and more and more and more. Things like World War II pilots flown over the mountains, seen it, um, archaeologists on um, expeditions have, have hiked across the mountain range and found, again, hand-finished pieces of timber that were locked together 4,000, 300, 4,600 meters above sea level. There are all these objections to Noah's Ark, but there are also secular sources that, that, will, that will say we found pieces of Noah's Ark. And, you know, we're thousands and thousands of years ago in history, and it's, you know, they've been preserved right up until, what, 1876, 1936, 1945. Just uh, a wonderful endorsement of the timeless truths preserved for us in God's word. So Genesis chapter six, Noah gets the word to build the ark. God has seen what his creation has resorted to and has said enough is enough. I'm doing something about it. Noah gets the call, prepare for this. He's obedient. And as we get into chapter seven and chapter eight, we'll see that he really does reap the blessings of this obedience. Next time then, Genesis chapter seven. But until then, God bless. Him.